The year was 1897, and America had come to the end of the Gilded Age. All that glittered was gold, at least on the surface. University President Seth Lowe had a vision for Columbia as the pinnacle of higher education in New York City. With the ambition of creating an academic village in a more, quote, spacious setting, unquote, Columbia left its home on Madison Avenue and began looking up north. The Bloomingdale Insane Asylum had been up for sale since 1889, so Columbia bought two-thirds of it after securing $2 million through alumni funds and money from selling the Midtown campus. From 116th to 120th Street, Columbia now had the space necessary for this new campus. The new campus was surrounded by what was then mostly farmland. The university had the chance to start from scratch when designing its new home. American architect Charles Kim recommended, quote, pure classical forms as expressing in the simplest and most monumental way the purposes to which buildings are devoted, unquote. And he insisted on the, quote, formal development of the university as a city property, unquote. Like any great university, the quality of education itself wasn't enough. It had to look the part too. Aesthetics were integral to presenting Columbia as a grand and metropolitan representation of higher learning. As such, the university turned to American architects William Meade, Stanford White, and McKim to design a vision for the future. Eager to bring European grandeur, the architects settled on classical and Renaissance models. They rejected the old Gothic style seen at schools like Princeton and Yale that imitated the old English universities. Lowe Library, which was constructed from 1895 to 1897, was inspired by the Pantheon in Rome. South Court, located in front of Lowe, was an open space fit for interactions between the students and community. The surrounding area on the campus became one. Embracing the community wasn't hard when there weren't many neighbors. Columbia didn't have to integrate itself into the city. Instead, it symbolized a particular vision of New York. With Lowe holding a clear view of downtown buildings, Columbia sat on its hill as the city grew toward it. Columbia now controls 299 acres of land. Around 92% of undergrads call the campus home during the school year. Some students say Morningside Heights feels like a college town, tucked away from the hustle and bustle of downtown, but with all of the benefits of the city. Columbia's presence in the area is tangible and undeniable, from its distinct architecture to the once familiar crowds of students on Broadway. COVID-19 changed that dramatically, with only a few students moving into the dorms this September, all having applied for housing due to exceptional personal circumstances. But one thing hasn't changed. Columbia's land-owning presence in Morningside Heights and West Harlem. While the use of those lands has changed over time, it continues to influence the life of community members with or without their consent. Around Columbia, the migration of black residents into the Harlem area began in the early 20th century due to another real estate crash. They lived alongside Italian and Eastern European Jewish residents that had settled there before. It was 1903, and University President Nicholas Murray Butler made the university resemble less and less the vision that Lowe and the architects had in mind. At the Morningside campus dedication, Lowe had said, quote, the university may not be indifferent to what is going on in this great city of which it is a part, and neither can the city forget, as it looks toward this hill, that there is in its midst, in this university, a life, the great watchword of which is truth, unquote. 
he invested in dorms and went on to severely restrict the enrollment of Jewish students, which allowed more students from across the country to attend. He purchased Southfield, which ran from 114th to 116th Street. In the next few years, from 1904 to 1913, Hartley, Livingston, later renamed Wallach, and Fernald Hall were built. More out-of-state, wealthier white students replaced local immigrant and Jewish students. In Butler's words, the, quote, nuisance, unquote, that was the city became less relevant. With the backs of buildings turned away from the street and Butler Library obstructing any view of the bustling city behind it, the architecture itself created a fortress-like wall. There was a distinct academic area, with buildings and students that weren't of the world beyond Broadway and Amsterdam. Gates went up and traffic closed on College Walk. in Colombia. We would like to change it. We would like to make it free of these racist elements. The central issue was Colombia expanding into black neighborhoods and destroying them to build more of Colombia. In 1966, the administration focused on a $200 million project called the, quote, Campaign for Colombia, unquote. Many of the funds raised were dedicated to expansion across Morningside Heights and Harlem. A $35 million gift from the Ford Foundation, a private foundation, emphasized that the money should be applied to the community through what the New York Times described as, quote, cooperation rather than imposed action, unquote. McGeorge Bundy, the president of the Ford Foundation from 1966 to 1979, said the following about the, quote, campaign for Columbia, unquote. Today, the great university in a metropolis must have a special and urgent concern for the future of the city and the future of those in our cities who lack full equality of opportunity. The great university on Morningside Heights is neighbor to one of the greatest problems and opportunities of American life, the problem and opportunity of Harlem. But how did Columbia go about solving the, quote, problem, unquote, of Harlem? What were the new opportunities that the university pursued? By 1968, Columbia had bought over 100 buildings and evicted thousands of tenants, many of whom were black or Puerto Rican people living in low-cost, rent-controlled apartments. These actions would make way for academic buildings, dormitories, and the like. In Morningside Park, Columbia signed a 100-year lease for 2.1 acres of land that would pay the city $3,000 every year. On this public land, the university planned to build a private gym that would sit on the west side of the park, just across from Amsterdam Avenue. Only the bottom two of the ten floors were supposed to be accessible to the public. Residents couldn't even use the same door as Columbia affiliates. Through the construction of a university gym in Morningside Park, Columbia sought to fundamentally change the nature of that land from public to private. Two months after the construction of the gym was greenlighted, students and community protests shut it down. With the stirred and politicized campus, student protesters set up a list of demands, one of which was canceling the construction of what they called, quote, Jim Crow, unquote. That's G-Y-M. Juniors Cicero Wilson and Ray Brown, leaders of the Society of Afro-American Students, argued that Columbia had stolen land from the predominantly black community. At a memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. held on campus, Students for Democratic Society Chairman and Junior Mark Rudd called the service a, quote, moral outrage, unquote, and said the following. How can these administrators praise a man who fought for human dignity when they have stolen land from the people of Harlem? We ought to stand together against this racist gym.
For these students, Columbia's aggressive land grabbing and construction was political. The Morningside Park gym became a major priority during the 1968 protests. The student demands no more secret military research, no more construction on land in Harlem, and no punishment for occupying the building. And their efforts were successful. When pressured by both the community and students, the university changed its plans for the neighborhood. Construction on the Morningside gym stopped. Columbia's period of growth without consulting its neighbors had come to an end, right? Fast forward to 2002. Bollinger became university president and new facilities quickly became a priority. Over 100 years had passed since Columbia's move to 116th Street. The university identified an area a bit north of the main campus as a place to begin construction of Manhattanville. But on the Manhattanville campus, we wanted to reflect uh, the ways in which we see the world today. Um, and that means a much uh, greater sense of integration with the surrounding communities. By 2003, Columbia had gained 51% of properties in the, quote, project area, unquote, which consisted of 67 different tax lots. This covered the 17-acre area between 125th and 133rd streets between Broadway and 12th Avenue. How did this happen? The answer is urban renewal programs and eminent domain. During the 1950s in New York City, areas like Manhattanville were targeted for, quote, slum clearance, unquote, after being designated as, quote, blighted, unquote. Legally, blight is defined as many things, from economic stagnation to a proliferation of liquor and adult shops to, quote, undesirable conditions, unquote, in general. By the late 2000s, the area of Manhattanville was seen by New York State as, quote, underutilized and lacking community amenities, unquote. Using this designation, Columbia had the state invoke eminent domain on its behalf, thereby making it easier to buy land. According to Cornell's Legal Information Institute, Eminent domain is defined as, quote, the power of the government to take private property and convert it into public use, unquote. In the 2005 Supreme Court case, Kilo versus City of New London, SCOTUS ruled that the general community benefiting as a result of economic development is good enough to warrant taking land for, quote, public use, unquote. Entities who use offensive land-grabbing tactics often have power that the community doesn't have. Debbie Becker, an associate professor of sociology at Columbia who teaches in the Urban Studies Department, emphasized the need for community empowerment and involvement in land development. The community, and especially the people who are losing their property, if they're still invested in that community, um, have want to and should have a say-so in what gets developed. In return for their land, the government is supposed to provide landowners with, quote, just compensation, unquote. It's supposed to place the owner in the same position as before, as if their land was never taken away. This is calculated by looking at the market value, income production, or cost of the property. Every case is different. It matters a lot how they are compensated, uh, and that doesn't mean just the amount of money, but sometimes there can be... Uh, Things done like trading properties, other properties that are nearby so that they can stay in the neighborhood. Um, it also matters, let me see, so, so I said it matters that the community uh, gets to participate pretty strongly in deciding what gets developed, um, that how people lose their property compensated really matters a great deal. 
While money matters, like Professor Becker said, it isn't everything. Quote, just compensation, unquote, usually does not include factors like the emotional, physical, and financial stress and loss that come from moving. For those that are forced to uproot their lives due to eminent domain, often without a stay, it can feel unfair and unjust. Becker goes on to describe how many of these authorities fail to provide people in these areas with resources to advocate for themselves and their rights. This only sours the relationship between institutions and the neighborhoods they develop in. In 2004, Columbia wrote a letter to the Empire State Development, or ESD, a state agency responsible for urban development. It asked them to, quote, consider the condemnation of portions of the property not under Columbia control, unquote, so that the university could use eminent domain. The use of eminent domain was challenged by residents beginning as early as 2004 when Community Board 9, or CB9, which includes Morningside Heights, Manhattanville, and Hamilton Heights, passed a unanimous decision condemning the use of eminent domain. In 2007, CB9 released a sustainable and inclusive development plan called the 197-A plan as an alternative to Columbia's proposed use of Manhattanville. It incorporated community input to benefit West Harlem and provided recommendations like the following. Mandate, preserve, and increase affordable housing. Quote, support local business development and forbid the use of eminent domain, unquote. In January 2009, Tuck It Away store owner Nick Spray-Regan and gas station owners Gurnam and Parminder Singh filed separate lawsuits against the ESD for colluding with Columbia in the Manhattanville project. They refused to sell their property, but it was declared, quote, blighted, unquote, and was subject to eminent domain. In response, they asked whether the expansion of a private university could be defined as a public good. A court ruled in favor of the community on December 3, 2009. However, in 2010, the New York Court of Appeals reversed this decision and said both Columbia and the ESD were working together against the, quote, eradication of blight, unquote. Since then, the university has continued to build and establish its campus in the area with some community consideration. On May 18, 2009, President Bollinger and the former president of the West Harlem Local Development Corporation, Julio Batista, signed the West Harlem Community Benefits Agreement, pledging to invest $150 million into the local community. In this agreement, Columbia, quote, acknowledged its intent to collaborate with the local community, unquote, and described the ways in which the community would, quote, share in the economic, educational, cultural, environmental, and social benefits, unquote, of this new campus. $76 million would go into a benefits fund, which would give grants to organizations involved with issues like housing, education, historic preservation, and employment. $30 million was allotted for a public teacher's college community school. $20 million went to an affordable housing fund, plus up to $4 million in housing legal assistance. Another $20 million worth of access to Columbia facilities, services, and amenities was promised. As construction began, so did some initiatives proposed by the university to keep their end of the deal. As of 2020, $10.8 million has been awarded to 173 local nonprofits. Almost $5 million in grants has been given to help approximately 12,000 public school students. But for many, including Robert Stern, a board member on the Morningside Heights Community Coalition, this is not enough. You know, the certain thing called peace of mind that Columbia owns, owes the community. The CBA benefits are on a deadline. On December 31st, 2040, Columbia will no longer legally be required to follow through on the promises it made to the community. What will remain is the Manhattanville campus, Columbia's refashioning of a pre-existing community. 
Until then, there's one more land use concern residents have, public health and COVID-19. Times article from May identified the area spanning Harlem and Morningside Heights as having Manhattan's highest death rate. To bring students from across the country to a hard-hit community could have very well been catastrophic. Columbia's fall plans to reopen during the COVID-19 pandemic reflected these sentiments. Initially, campus was planned to open at 60% capacity. First years, sophomores, and those with extenuating circumstances were given priority. In order to come onto campus, students were required to follow measures outlined by sources like the Columbia Community Health Compact. The document is intended to, quote, recognize our shared responsibility for community health, unquote. However, in spec articles, some students admitted they had not reviewed the compact nor remembered what it said. In response, the community voiced concerns over whether or not students could follow such mandates. The university's plan to bring students back put the well-being of its neighbors at a greater risk. Reopening campus would have dire effects on the surrounding Black and Latinx communities, many of which are low-income. Only one hospital, the private Mount Sinai Morningside, serves all of West Harlem, Morningside Heights, and Hamilton Heights. Spectator coverage has discussed the lack of access to adequate health care in disadvantaged communities. While this has always been an issue, COVID-19 has made it clear just how pervasive this issue is. If a vaccine is on the way, as a recent Spectator article suggests, quote, a majority of West Harlem residents won't see it anytime soon, unquote. That article references the inaccessibility of the H1N1 vaccine to low-income communities during the 2009 swine flu outbreak. It isn't hard to imagine that being the case with COVID-19. With recent COVID-19, where we saw the plans and we felt that the plans never mentioned the impact on the community uh, when students returned, mm-hmm. um, so we've raised we raised that uh, and participated. They asked, they invited us to participate at a webinar, uh, and have, have questions sent uh, ahead of time. And almost none of the questions were answered. They could filter them out and pick which ones they wanted to answer. When it seemed inevitable, though, Columbia reversed the decision, much to the relief of the community. There are thousands of people around campus who would have been put at risk had the original plan come to fruition. Over 100 years ago, that wasn't so much the case, but it is now. From 1897 to 2020, some things have changed and some things have stayed the same. In moving to Morningside Heights, Columbia established itself as a powerful force, designing a new neighborhood. Yet, despite how that neighborhood has evolved over the years, the university continues to pursue policies that shape the landscape unilaterally. How will Columbia keep its word? The university's actions will always impact the community, but who can push back when it makes decisions by itself? How can every stakeholder shape the future of this land? It goes beyond merely identifying the trend. People, like you said, their end thought is, oh, Columbia gentrifies Harlem, what's new? But that's not okay, that shouldn't be normal, that shouldn't be acceptable, we shouldn't stand for that, especially you know, everything Columbia stands for and how many protests and marches there are on campus all the time for many different issues. This should be one. That's Brianna Sturkey, a recent Barnard graduate. 
She wrote her senior thesis on gentrification and Columbia's Manhattanville project. Why not start at home? Why not look down the street at the people who are suffering from the very institution that we go to? Why not start there and start our activism in the community? and looking inwards. So I, that would be my advice to Columbia students, Columbia alumni, anybody, um, people interested in going to Columbia, <laughs> just really looking at what does your university do for the people that live closest to it. And some of them already have. Recently, Columbia's mobilized African diaspora, MAD, released a list of demands aimed at holding the university accountable for its history of anti-blackness. Of its five demands, the first calls on Columbia to fulfill its responsibilities to the people of West Harlem. This includes, but is not limited to, ending predatory land acquisitions, funding affordable housing, and eliminating the term date on the CBA. On September 24, 2020, Community Board 9 voted to support Matt's demands. Like Sturkey, students and alumni have used their power to uplift community voices, just as they did in 1968. Who's to say it can't happen again? Despite being far from campus and entirely online, students are still looking for ways to get involved with the surrounding neighborhoods. While many students aren't in New York City right now, residents of Morningside Heights and Harlem are. They were there before we moved in as freshmen, and they'll be there after we graduate. Students have the opportunity and power to create a campus that is part of the community. After all, it is Columbia University in the city of New York. This episode of the year was reported by Brownie Netzelwald. It was produced by Sam Hyman and edited by Teresa Lawler and Eve Washington. This episode featured the voice acting of Paul Hanna and Cole Cowell. The music in this episode comes from Kevin MacLeod, Chad Crouch, Parallel Park, Ketza, and Blue Dot Sessions, provided via freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects were provided via Soundly. Thank you for listening to The Ear.